This is KMTT. Tuesday, Parshat HaShavua, will be delivered by Rav Alex Israel. Parshat Matot presents us with considerable challenges. Um, on one hand, Parshat Matot is a very technical parsha. That is our first problem. The second problem is that we have three very distinct chapters which seem virtually disconnected. Let me try and summarize the contents of the Parsha, and then we will see if we can begin to address some of the issues contained within it. As I say, the Parsha consists of three distinct topics. Chapter 30, the opening uh, segment of the Parsha, begins to deal with Nidarim, the topic of vows. Um, the parsha begins in the following way. Just find the Ishki Dor Nedel Hashem or Hishavashvua Leesor Isar Nafsho. Any man who makes a vow or an oath to restrict himself, Loyachel Dvaro, he is not allowed to break his word. Kachol Hayotzei Mipiv Yase, you have to fulfill your vows. And then the entire continuation of the parsha here deals with um, in what situation one may annul a vow and in what situation a vow may not be annulled. That is chapter 30. Chapter 31 is a totally different scene entirely because it describes a war, a war of vengeance against the Midianites. Why do we have a vendetta against the Midianites? It's quite uh, quite simple. We've already read earlier on in the end of Parshat Balak and the beginning of Parshat Pinchas about the um, consorting of Bnei Israel with the Midianite women. The Midianite women entered the camp of Bnei Israel and seduced the Israelites. In fact, uh, Bnei Israel consorted with them both uh, sexually and in terms of idolatry. And this led to the act of vengeance of Pinchas. And at the end of that whole episode, Hashem instructs us, I'm reading from the end of chapter 25 of Bamibar, um, essentially go to war against the Midianim and destroy them. Because they were devious and cunning, because they tricked you with the matter of Bal Pa'or, they seduced you to um, to follow their gods, and uh, and therefore, and, and this was a deliberate endeavor to bring Bnei Israel to their knees and to call, cause a plague, to weaken Bnei Israel, and therefore you must go out there and destroy the Midianim, and that's what we do in chapter thirty-one. It seems like the Midianim are not a formidable enemy because. Uh, we only send 12,000 troops, uh, 1,000 per tribe, and we decimate the Midianites. Um, we kill their five kings, if you look at Pasukhet, um, and, and Bilam as well. And the vast majority of chapter 31 deals with the spoils of war, and how the spoils of war may be brought back to the camp, the booty, how it is to be divided, how a certain segment of it is to be dedicated to God, it's one of those parshiot which seems very detail-heavy, chapter 31. However, we're going to return to it and see some of the principles 
which underlie this chapter. So chapter 30 is about making and breaking vows. Chapter 31 is the war against the people of Midian. And chapter 32 takes us into an entirely different um, agenda, where chapter 32 is the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, the two tribes of uh, Israel who decide that they would like to remain in Transjordan. They would like to remain outside the borders of uh, Eretz Israel, And they make a request to Moshe Rabbeinu that they should be allowed to uh, stay in uh, the lands which they have conquered from Sichon and Og in Eva Hayardain. And uh, as many of you will recall, Moshe gets very, very upset. And he accuses these tribes of disheartening the people, discouraging the people. He is exceptionally concerned that if there are groups amongst Bnei Israel who don't want to enter into the Promised Land, this will uh, weaken the enthusiasm of the nation and that essentially we are headed for another situation, another uh, replay of the spies episode where the people don't want to go into the land. And therefore he makes a deal with Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain that they have to go in as Chalutzim, as the crack troops, as the advance unit, and lead the people in war. And only after they have fought for Eretz Israel will they be allowed to come back to their wives, families and farms in the Transjordan. Interestingly, it would appear that the stories are absolutely distinct. But uh, one of the key words here is the word Chalutzim, which appears both in chapter 31 and in chapter 32. Chapter 31 tells us that uh, we have Elef Lematesh name Asar Elef Chalutzei Tzava. We have uh, people who are known as Chalutzei Tzava, the first people in the army. Likewise, we have in the in the following parsha, Anachnu Nechalets Kushim Lifnei Bnei Israel. We will be the Chalutzim, uh, as Moshe says, Imtel Tichaltsu. Of course, the word chalutz has been adopted in modern Israel as the pioneer um, who works the land, but here it refers to um, the attack, attack soldiers. So, what might appear to be two absolutely different parashiyot, chapter 31 and 32, are linked by a given phrase. And this leads us to question whether possibly there are other other linkages, other factors in common between some of the elements of the parashiyot here. So I'd like to already launch into the first, uh, we've already mentioned this linguistic connection, but I'd like to engage in understanding maybe a, a deeper connection between them. If you looked in chapter 31, one of the principles um, relating to the booty of war, to the, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the spoils of war, is that there has to be an equal sharing of the booty between the people who go to war and the people on the home front. If you want to look at this, you will see, um, you will find this in, in Pasuk Chavav and Chavzayin, God instructed Moshe saying, 
Avot Ha'ida, there are quartermasters. He says uh, the, the, the army don't simply bring back the spoils and seize it themselves. We will get back to this theme in a second. However, you, Moshe and Elazar, the high priest and the heads of the community should take responsibility for the, for the spoils of war. And you've got to divide it into two parts. Half will go to the people who went to war, and half will go to the rest of the people of Israel. And there will also be a certain section dedicated to Hashem. I say this um, is interesting because here we see a fundamental practice which... Uh, characterizes the army, a Jewish army, the army of Bnei Israel, and that this is this equal sharing of the spoils of war. Um, in, in this regard, I think what we're saying is that the spoils are far from the exclusive property of the attack force. There is a sense that the entire nation whether they go out to war or whether they support on the on the home front, are all part of a single unity. That the nation as a whole are fighting together, whether they actively um, engage in combat or whether they are on the home front. And I, I say this uh, is, is a significant point because I think that we find this principle very, very powerfully, the notion of national unity in war, in chapter tw- 32, in the story of Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain, the when Moshe Rabbeinu hears that Bnei Gad and Bnei Ruvain wish to remain on the other side of the Jordan, he is outraged. And the first line that he says, even before he starts talking about Eretz Yisrael and uh, are you going to dishearten the children of Israel from going over to the land, he says a very simple line, What, your brothers are going to go out to war and you will sit here? How can it be that you will be disengaged from the, the war effort? How can it be that you will sit at your, on your farms while your brothers are, 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 are in battle? You can't simply sit up with your feet on the couch as... Uh, your fellow Israelites, your fellow Jews, are endangering their life. And this is a very, very deep critique of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, And I think that this feature um, straddles both chapter 31 and 32, the notion that at some level the Bnei Israel are all united when it comes to war um, as an entire collective, as a group, as the body politic of the nation, it's not just those who fight and don't fight, but um, every single person is, is, is engaged at some level in the war efforts. Now, this principle of the shared spoils of war and the, is echoed in a later um, story, a story about David HaMelech. Um, you can find this story in Sefer Shmuel, Shmuel Aleph, Perek Lamed. And let me give you a little bit of background. And I, I want to read you some of this story because the story is a very powerful one and it's going to be exceptionally relevant to our, to our topic here. Um, 
Let me give you some of the background to the story. David is at this time living in Eretz Plishtim. He has uh, left Eretz Israel because uh, he's, Shaul is trying to kill him. And he has uh, taken over a city called Siklag. Him and his 600 men, 600 Jewish men with him. Uh, this is a sort of um, a group and they all have wives and children. So it's probably 600 uh, fighting men, but maybe many thousands of people who live in this sort of yeshuv, uh, this settlement somewhere in, uh, in Eretz Plishtim, a place called Siklag. And David goes out to battle. And while they're out of the camp, the, the camp is attacked by Amalek, who cart everybody off. They burn the city. They take all of their wives and children and daughters captive. And they, they, they take everything. And David comes back and he decides he's going, he finds everybody gone. And he says, he actually asks Hashem, should he chase them? Hashem says yes. And let me just read the story. I'm going to read it in English, please excuse me. But, uh... If I start reading the Hebrew and translating, we're certainly going to not have much time for this shiur. So I'm reading from uh, Shmuel Aleph Perak Lamed Pasuk Tet, chapter 30, verse 9. So David and the 600 men with him set out, and they came to Nachal HaBasar. Some of you will be familiar with Nachal HaBasar in the Negev, where a halt was made by those who were to be left behind. David continued the pursuit with 400 men, and 200 men had halted, too faint to cross Nachal HaBasar. Nachal HaBasar, uh, even today, has water flowing through it, and uh, apparently it was quite an obstacle. There were people amongst David's men who were too faint, maybe it seems like they'd been travelling all the way from up north, from the Gilboa area. Um, they'd been walking for, for a long time. And, um, and therefore, 400 men go to attack, and 200 stay behind. When David comes back from war, um, it tells us that David David rescued everything the Amalekites had taken. David rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing. Young or old, sons or daughters, spoil or anything else that had been carried off. And David recovered everything. He took all the flocks and the herds, etc. And it says, and they declared, this is David's spoil. This is the spoil of David HaMelech. And when David reached the 200 men who, who were too faint to follow David and who had been left at Nachal HaBasar and they came out to welcome David and the troops, um, all the mean and churlish fellows among them, the Bnei Belial, said, since they didn't accompany us, we're not giving them the spoil that we seized except everybody can take their wife and children. In other words, you can each take your family but you don't get any of the booty. And David said, you must not do that. Um, my brothers, in view of the fact that the, that God has granted us, guarding us and delivering us unto the hands of the band that attacked us, how could anyone agree with you in this manner? The share of those who remain with the baggage shall be the same as the share of those who go down to battle. They shall share alike. So from that day on, it was made a fixed rule for Israel, continuing to the present day. I think there are two points here. We'll come to the second one in a few minutes. But let's mention them. The first is that the people turn around and declare, this is David's spoil. That this is the uh, shalal of David. That somehow David has gone to war and he has brought back all of this, uh, all of these, this wealth, these riches. 
and therefore it really belongs to David. However, David argues with them and he says, this is not David's spoil, this is God's spoil. Because God has guarded us and delivered us, delivered the enemy into our hands. That's point number one. But the second point goes back to what we described. He says, the share of those who remain with the baggage, whoever looked after the bags, should be the same as the share who go down into battle. They should share alike. And from then on it was a fixed rule. And I would argue that this didn't originate with David, but rather this originated already here in Parshat Matot, where, um, where we see this notion of the equal share of the um, advance uh, troops and the home guard it's something that we learnt here in Israel quite uh, strongly during the during various different wars, particularly during the Second Lebanon War, where there were people fighting up in Lebanon. Uh, just today, I heard on the radio the memorial ceremony uh, for the five years since the Milchemet uh, Lebanon Ashnia. Um, even though there were people fighting in Lebanon, there were still casualties on the home front. There were people in their miklatim, in their shelters, who needed a lot of help. And we do realize that when it comes to a war, uh, the people who are left behind, in many ways, the people who are manning the home front, are as important as the people who are fighting out in the field. David says everybody shares the spoils equally. So I guess our first point is that there really is a deep connection between chapter 31 and chapter 32. And that is the notion that when it comes to war, everyone is equal, everybody is part of the is sharing the burden. This is what Moshe insisted of Bnei Gad and Ruvain, and this is what Hashem insisted that Moshe do with the spoils of war of Midian. And this later is reflected in the stories of David HaMelech, um, the unity of the nation when it comes to war. So that's point number one. But I'd like to take this discussion of the spoils of war further. And um, I, I have to mention that much of what I'm going to say from this point on can be found in an article uh, by Rav Yolbin Nun, which is uh, in a book on Parshat Shavua called Potchim Shavua. Um, it's a series of different articles actually by various rabbis and even many Chavrei Knesset politicians, secular philosophers. But in there on Parshat Matot, there is an article by Rav Yolbin Nun and he talks exactly about this notion of the spoils of war and the Jewish ethic of the spoils of war. And let us return to this topic to understand this a little bit. Why does Judaism have, or why does Judaism devote so much energy to this topic? What, what, what exactly is at the, the heart of all of this? So the first point is, is an ethical point. Why do we need to have... Um, organized legal arrangements regarding captured property of the of the enemy that we have beaten. Rav Yolbinun argues that it is crucial, and it is crucial for two reasons. One is an ethical reason, and one is a tactical reason. Let's deal with the first, ethical. Rav Yolbinun says that there is a, a clear distinction between the manner in which an army fights as opposed to sort of a gang, thieves, pirates, bandits. What do I mean? An army does not loot or engage in piracy. Uh, if we do engage in like a sort of a smash and grab operation, 
that exactly is the culture of thieves where the first thing in the fighter's mind uh, is the gold and silver, the treasure that he will pocket after the fight. And that's his whole motivation, that's why he goes to war. However, this is uh, particularly selfish, and I, uh, one would have to argue as regards the ethics of war, if the whole aim is my personal gain, this cannot possibly be an ethical war. Um, the Jewish army fights to protect its people and its land, whether it's a Milchemet Mitzvah, which is to capture the land or to defend it, or even a Milchemet Rashut. The whole aim is to further the um, strength of the people, the land, the values of the land, the future of the people. And to this to this aim, we cannot have a situation in which we go to war in order to plunder and to amass wealth. Um, the army may take the property from the battlefield in some way. This would appear to be um, the maybe some sort of reward for going to war, but the fighter doesn't occupy his mind with it. And to this degree, as I mentioned before, there is a quartermaster, there is somebody who takes, who he passes all the spoil onto, and they take a organized roster of everything they've taken, and it will be divided fairly between everybody later. So there isn't any of this sort of uh, seizing the spoils of war. In fact, what we see later on in Tanakh, if you look in Parshat Shoftim, the scene of Midian Namalek in the in Emek Yisrael, um, in the story of uh, of Gidon, where they have gone through the countryside and they are in a situation where they are lolling about, enjoying the spoils of war, that is not something that we do. And this relates to our second point, which is the reason why it's so important that we don't prey upon the spoils of war is tactical. Because when the army begins to enjoy the spoils of war, the battle is over. Um... Armies happen, uh, sorry, attacks happen very, very quickly. Uh, of course, sometimes there is a siege war, which nothing happens for a long time. But when the action does begin, one has to be totally alert and totally engaged in the chase. There are so many situations where we see wars in Eretz Israel, where once you get the enemy on the run, you can't afford to waste a second, because once they get back to their walled cities, you are um, in a stalemate once again. And therefore... Uh, if the chase ends because the binge begins, because people start taking everybody weighed down, this one has sheep and this one has gold and this one has silver, this one has what have you, suddenly people simply cannot fight. Once people start taking the spoils of war, there is no battle left. There is no motivation to continue fighting. And therefore, if there is no official mechanism of distribution, then the army will simply be unable to hold out on lengthy and difficult mission because each person will get tense and try and grab his share of the spoils of war and the army will not be able to function. So for tactical reasons, we have to have an, an organized point of the of the spoils of war. Um, by the way, we, we see this very clearly in Shmuel Aleph in the Milchamav Tziklag uh, of Michmas, sorry where in the war of Michmas, where Shaul goes to war, he won't let the people eat, he tells them they've got to fast, and at a certain point, they really do have to eat, and they start uh, taking the animals of the enemy and slaughtering them, and when Shaul says, come on, let's go chase the enemy, they say, oh, if you want to, you can chase them, but we, we need to have dinner. You need to have a, a tactical organization, an organized army, in order to, to be able to uh, vanquish the enemy.
Um, so this is this is uh, rather important. So, by the way, this is this is also true in regards to the story we learned about David uh, before, because when David if David wants to have people watching the bags, watching their horses, I guess, the various animals and other things couldn't really um, cross the big wadi, then if they have to leave their bags behind because they're weighed, weighed back, if, they, if the people think they won't get any spoils aboard, they'll simply desert the, the, the war efforts. And therefore, it's incredibly important tactically to, to share everything equally. However, here I return to a third dimension, which isn't ethical, it's not tactical, but it is actually theological. And the theological side is what we saw in David. This is not David's spoils, but in fact it is what the Lord has given to us, as David says. Who do the spoils of war belong to? The spoils of war belong to the, vic- the victorious, the victor of the war, the person who is victorious. But who really is victorious? If God has granted us victory, then the spoil is the product of that victory. Am Israel have not earned the spoil, um, God has, and therefore the spoil really uh, belongs to him. And that's precisely the debate between David and his soldiers. So we mentioned three dimensions. One is an ethical dimension, that the organized allocation of spoils promotes an ethical army. Number two, a tactical um, idea that, that this way that they can... Um, actually go to war, and theological. The spoil is an expression of Hashem's victory in the battlefield. I I come to this um, story because um, it's not only David who always sees his battles as a battle of God, but it's also true in the war of Midian in our parsha. First, let me mention that the war of Midian, um, if I mentioned before that it is a a rabble who engage in a smash-and-grab operation, who seize the loot and prey on the spoils, that is certainly not the case in our, in our parasha. It almost seems to be a deliberate, chapter 31, a deliberate slow process of bringing the army back without any sense of bravado or any sense of triumphalism, even though they have defeated their sworn enemy. Because what you see that happens in this story in in Bamibah chapter 31, is that the people come back from war, and for seven days, they're Tameh. They, they, they're Tameh, and therefore seven days, all of the fighting men stay outside the camp. Um, and can you imagine? They're all waiting for the soldiers to come home. They're waiting for the victory march through the main, um, uh, the, the main street of the camp of Israel, and all of the army have to stay outside, milling around on the outskirts of the camp for seven days until they can go to the mikvah, until they can become pure. It sort of like takes the excitement out of the whole thing. We're waiting for the for the parade. We're waiting for the salute. We're waiting for the marching bands. But no, by the time seven days have passed, uh, you know, the excitement has already dissipated. Um, likewise, all the spoils of war, we have the have to be kashered. And according to Chazal, not only have to go through kashering, but have to go through um, the kalim mikvah. Um, they have to be processed and they have to be, if you want, uh, converted to be able to be used within a Jewish con- context. And this is where we have the 
a famous psukim which talks about anything which usually goes in fire shall be purified by fire. These are the laws of kashering, the laws of Hagalah. Anything which can't be used with hot things, you simply wash with water. And uh, Chazal learned from this story also the idea of Tefillah Kalim. But again, the sense isn't one of uh, people greedily preying on the spoils, but actually a very careful process of slowly taking in these things. There's no sense of, uh, as I say, of, of some sort of a greedy. Um, seizing uh, material possessions, but rather a, a very, very thought out, a very slow, cautious process of, of of taking everything very, very carefully as you bring in things from the outside into the camp. Um, so that's one point which I think is worthwhile mentioning when we read chapter thirty-one. But a, a further thing is the is the result of the war. If you look at par- there's another remarkable feature of the war which belies the fact that it really is God's war. It says there, The commanding officers come forward to Moshe and they say to Moshe, We have counted our troops after the attack, after the battle. And there have been no casualties. Not one man is missing. Halavai, that we should always have this situation when we go to war, that there should be zero casualties. And now it says, They say, um, we would like to bring a special gift, all sorts of gold items Chains, bracelets, rings, earring, girdles to make atonement for our soul. In other words, they want to bring a special korban, a special gift to God as a kapara. Wow, we got through this war without a single casualty. We need to bring a special gift to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If you look at the Ramban here in Pasuk Mem Tet, the Ramban says the following. The Ramban says, Hine Hashem asat God performed this great victory with not one soldier being killed out of our forces. And hence, we want to bring an offering to God that delivered us to bring a penance for our lives which were spared from death. Okay? He says, um, we need to, to bring In other words, the people realize that they've had a miracle and almost in like a Birchara Gomel sense, they would like to say thank you to God. However, the Rashban takes it even further. The Rashban says something remarkable, which he quotes from his father, uh, Abba Mari Harav Meir, and he says, this is, he says the following, he says, what does it mean that we want to give this special offering l'chaper al-nafshotenu? He says, shenadarnu nega. We all remember the idea that when you have to count the troops, when you have to count kitisait rosh b'nei Yisrael, you count with a half shekel, the when you have to count, the, the one time when you really have to count people is when you go to war. And um, in order there won't be a negaf, everybody gives a half shekel or whatever it might be. He says that what, what they have here 
is that they vowed before they counted the troops, before they went to battle, in order that no plague would befall them. And therefore, this that they vowed, they, even before they went to battle, they, they had already set aside these objects in order to dedicate them to God. Um, this is actually a, a, a remarkable thing. And what is remarkable about it, more than anything else, is the fact that it links us not just with the Parsha afterwards, with Perak Lamed Bet, but also with Perak Lamed. After all, Perak Lamed dealt with the notion of vows. And it might be that this explains exactly the connection between the, the various different elements of our Parsha. Perak Lamed deals with vows, but when do you really need to vow? You need to vow when you're in trouble. As we say always in Halal, okay, when the we read Ma Shivla. We read Ahavti uh, Ki Yishma Hashem and Koli Tachanunai. We talk about a situation where Afafuni Chevlei Mavet or Mitzareish Ol Mitzaruni Taravi Agon and Sav Hashem Hashem Ekra Ana Hashem Malta Nafshi. We talk about the idea that when we are in trouble, we say to God, "Please save my life." And indeed, there God does save him. But the next paragraph says Ma Shiv Hashem Kol Tachanunai Alai Kosi Shor Dasav Hashem Hashem Ekra. What can I respond to God? He saved my life. I will, I will fulfill my vow. When a person's life is in danger, they vow. They say, if I ever get out of this, I will give the following to God. I will, you know, a person's in distress. They say, if I get through this illness, if I get through this bad time, I will give this to God. And it would appear, according to the Rashbam, that's exactly what happened. Perak Lamad represents the vows. And it says, if you vow to God, you've got to keep that vow. Perak Laman Aleph talks about a situation where, according to the Rashbam, they vowed before war because they understood that when they go to war, they are in God's hands. And indeed, when they came back, they, number one, divided the spoils very carefully because, after all, it wasn't their war, it was God's victory. And therefore, the property doesn't truly belong to them. And number two, they understood that they had to say thank you to God. They had to say a special uh, blessing to God and bring bring exactly that that object which they vowed, which was lechaper nafshotechem, which was to atone for them when they came back from the the war front. And moving into Periklam and Bet, where we talk about not the war to destroy Midian, maybe that was the promo, the the pre-war, but the warm-up. But Periklam and Bet is talking about the war of Eretz Israel. We once again learn a few important lessons. Number one, that just like in, in Perak Lamad Aleph where the spoils were shared equally, here the war must be fought equally. No sector of Bnei Israel is exempt from the battle. Everybody has to go to the war. Will your brothers go to war and you will just remain out of the game? How can that be, says Moshe? But beyond that, Whenever Moshe talks about the, the war against Bnei Israel, he always talks about the idea that it is not our war, but rather it is God's war. He says, Moshe im I'm reading from Perak, Lamed Bet Pasukhaf, chapter 32, verse 20. If you do this, Im you will go, all of you armed over the Arden before God until he has driven out his enemies before you and the land be subdued before God. Um, 
And after you do that, and it's fascinating that we learn exactly the laws of Tanai B'nai Gadu B'nai Ruvain, the notion of how to make a true promise from this parsha. So we have all of these elements coming together. The notion, number one, of the unity of the people. The notion, number two, that these battles are really um, God's fight. And number three, the notion that when we are in distress and we vow, we've got to keep our word, or maybe I'll put it differently. Even before, if we know that we are going to be in trouble, if we know that we're going to war and we are actually putting ourselves, our lives in danger, um, we should realize that really it is God's war and we should be mechaper al and uh, please God, we should only know what we see in this parsha, in the parsha of uh, Paraklam and Aleph, that if we do, unfortunately, ever have to go to war, we should also return back from the battlefield and hear our commanding officers say, um, that we should also return with zero casualties um, in any future battle that we are forced to fight. I hope we've given some meaning to some of the deep themes within the Parsha and uh, maybe attempted to draw some connecting lines between the very different worlds of chapter 30, chapter 31 and chapter 32. Thank you very much and Shabbat Shalom.